Good morning to you. Did you ever hear the one about the three Christians during the French Revolution who were sentenced to death by guillotine? One Christian had the gift of faith, and the other had the gift of prophecy, and the third had the gift of helps. And the Christian with the gift of faith was to be executed first. And the new guillotine had a new routine, for this model executed its victims face up. That's how it was designed. And so with this new wrinkle, the state offered a hood so you wouldn't see what was coming. And so the first prisoner was asked, would you like to wear this hood? And he declined, announcing he was not afraid to die. He said, I have faith that God will deliver me, he shouted bravely. And so his head was positioned under the guillotine, and he looked up at that sharp blade, and he said a short prayer. And he waited confidently, and the rope was pulled by the executioner, and nothing happened. And so the executioners were amazed, and believing this must have been some miracle act of God, they freed the man. And so the Christian with the gift of prophecy was next, and his head was positioned under the guillotine, and he too was asked, do you, do you want a hood so you don't see what's coming? And he said, no, I am not afraid to die. However, I predict that God will deliver me from this guillotine. And at that, the rope was pulled, and once again, the guillotine did not budge. And again, they thought, well, this must be an act of God, and they freed that man. And so then the third Christian, the one with the gift of helps, is brought up to the stage, and he's brought to the guillotine, and he is likewise asked, would you like to wear the hood? And he said, no, I'm just as brave as those other two men. And so the executioners positioned him there, and they're just about to pull the rope when the man says, hey, wait a minute, I think I found the problem with your guillotine. All kidding aside, it's been my experience that Christians have often have questions about spiritual gifts. And since the 1970s, there's really been an explosion of literature on this topic, the topic of spiritual gifts. There wasn't a lot of writing in Christendom before that. And, and despite, or maybe even because of, all of these writings, I find that many Christians really struggle to find their footing when it comes to the subject of spiritual gifts. And so I would like to invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, as we endeavor to discover together more truths, basic truths, about spiritual gifts. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you today, please reach out in the pew in front of you. There is a blue pew Bible, and if you turn to page 1219, you should find 1 Corinthians 12. As you turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of this church and the ultimate author of Scripture. For no prophecy of Scripture ultimately came from the will of man, but each was moved by the Holy Spirit. You have inspired every jot and every tittle and the least stroke of the pen. Thy word is truth, and we live in a world full of error, and half-truth, deception, and outright lies. But your word is a lamp unto our feet. It keeps us from walking in darkness. It prevents us from stumbling. And so we ask today, in our time together, that you would please help us to really understand the five remaining basic truths regarding spiritual gifts that we see of the nine 
here in 1 Corinthians 12. Help us, Lord, not just to know them cognitively, but help us to walk in them purposefully, intentionally, consistently, that your body might be built up and there might be more praise given to the name of Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his fame. We're so glad he came. Amen. So the word of God says in 1 Corinthians 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. So, so every time Paul in the book of Corinthians moves to a new topic, he says now and now and now and now. And so here's the new topic for chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. And now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Christians can misunderstand this stuff if they don't have a biblical perspective. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That is, from their heart, believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one as he individually wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though our many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks and slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God is apportioned in the church, first apostles and second prophets and third teachers, and then miracles and gifts of healing and helping and administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all prophets? Are all apostles? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Last week in our time together in this text, we laid out the first four basic truths about spiritual gifts. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't have a chance to listen in, you can listen again. You can go to the website and you can listen in. You can also sign up for our podcasts and it will come to your phone or device automatically. But by way of review, in case you were not with us, here is what we learned to be true. Number one, on the slide in front of us, if we are not careful, we will import a pagan fascination with the sensational over and against that which is biblical and helpful. That's the implicit warning and the introduction to the three chapters under discussion is, hey, don't be fascinated with the sensational, hold on to the biblical and helpful. Number two, spiritual gifts are God-given endowments of various divine enablements for his church's betterment. That is, God gives them. He gives them to his people to build up the body of Christ. Number three, God gives our spiritual gifts to us sovereignly. It's not something we earn by merit or learn by effort. Now, we can fan into flame the gift of God, but ultimately the gift has to come from God. They're grace gifts, and the word uh, charismata is from the word charis, which means grace. And number four, God distributed his gifted people throughout his church in ways that he knows is best, and that will best build up his church. That is, God is distributing us in local congregations because he has a purpose for such a time as this that everything that needs to be done to the glory of God will be done. So now we come to new territory in our survey. We come to point five on our outlines. And what I want you to see is that all believers are graciously given at least one spiritual gift. All believers, all believers, not super believers, not long-standing believers, not elders, all born-again believers in Jesus Christ are given at least one spiritual gift. And God's word is clear on this. Look at verse 7. The Bible says, to each. Now, he's writing to the brothers. Now, brothers concerning, right? Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. So, he's assuming that his audience is a Christian. And he's saying, Christian, to each and every Christian is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, gifts are going to vary from believer to believer. But every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Now, you may well have more than one. The Apostle Paul certainly did, but you have at least one. For to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Scripture couldn't be clearer on this matter. Uh, turn in the Word of God to the right of Corinthians to 1 Peter 4.10. You get past Paul's letters, and you start getting to other letters, and you're going to come to 1 Peter 4.10. On the Blue Pew Bibles, it's page 1296. Turn to 1 Peter 4.10 for just a moment. 
Leave your thumb in Corinthians, because that's our main passage, but I want to just touch upon 1 Corinthians 4.10 for a moment. The Bible couldn't be clearer that every single born-again believer is given a spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, as each, he's talking to every believer, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks as the one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter divides the gifts into gifts of speaking, and, and those would be gifts like teaching and tongues in our passage, and gifts of serving, like helps in administration. But but both Peter and Paul say all the gifts have one goal, and that goal is ministry to Christ's body. Every single saint has at least one spiritual gift, and that means we must steward this treasure given by the Master very carefully. Now, Romans 12 says the same thing. And so if you turn for a second to Romans 12, that's to the left of Corinthians. So if you go back to Corinthians and you go to the left, you get to Romans, you go to Romans 12, it's on page 1205. I just want you to understand very clearly that if you really get nothing else out of the sermon, every single Christian has at least one spiritual gift, and there's at least three passages that teach this unmistakably clearly. Because many Christians go, I just have nothing to offer the kingdom of God. Well, friend, if you're a Christian, that's not true. Based on the word of God, you have at least one spiritual gift. In Romans 12, 3, the Bible says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh, so God has assigned different levels in, in his church of these gifts. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. That is, God gives the different people different gifts, and they're going to do different things. And so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having, what's that word? Gifts. Gifts that differ. The person next to you probably has a different gift than you, and if they have the same gift, you're probably called to use it in slightly different ways. Having gifts that differ according to the grace. These are grace gifts. You cannot earn them. You can only receive them. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us bury them, hide them. No, let us use them. Let us use them. If it's prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If it's service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who con contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts with mercy and with cheerfulness. Friends, what, what Peter says to the saints scattered throughout uh, Asia... And what Paul says to the Corinthians and what Paul says to the Romans is also what Paul says to the church of the Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians 4.4. That's to the right of where you are now. Ephesians 4.4 is on page 1243. Page 1243. It seems that Peter and Paul went out of their way to make sure that almost every congregation they came in contact with understood this central truth. You have a spiritual gift. Use it to the glory of God. In Ephesians 4.4, 4, and if you're dyslexic, that's still Ephesians 4.4. 4. It, it could be 4.4 4 Ephesians, depending on how it's like, but it's not going to change the chapter and verse. 
And it says this, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to who? To each one of us. To each one of us. To every one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And so if you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. You might have to discover it. You might need to grow in it. You might need to fan it in the flame for the glory of Jesus' name. But let me assure you by the repeated declaration of the one true God, every single born-again believer has at least one spiritual gift. Now, there's something else that's universal, and at first it sounds like a reversal, but we shall see that it is both providential and indeed wonderful. This brings us to point six in all this. No believer has all the gifts. So every believer has at least one gift, but no individual believer shall ever have all the gifts. Look at verse 29, very clear. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the greater or higher gift. So Paul asks seven questions. All seven of those questions are what people call rhetorical questions. And what is the answer to a rhetorical question? And the answer here is, well, the answer is no in every single case. It is obvious that not all Christians are apostles. That was a very small group in the sense of apostle with big A, in the sense of, of, of the 12 or the 13 if you include Paul or the 14 if you include Mattathias, but then do you eliminate Judas? So it's a little messy, but it's less than 14 and more than 12, right? In that sense, okay? Now, why do we know that's a closed group? Why do we know that's not a group open to everyone? Well, an apostle had to be the eyewitness of Jesus, and he had to be able to perform the works of an apostle, which the Bible says were powerful supernatural sign gifts that would authenticate the gospel message they were in the process of disseminating. So, unless you're 2,000 years old, you would not be an apostle today, and then you would need to be able to also perform the signs that accompany an apostle. So clearly, are all in the church apostles? No. Uh, are all prophets? And he would say, no again. Well, we have some prophets in Scripture. You have Agabus is a prophet. But generally, this seemed to be something in the body that was distributed rather rarely. Are all teachers? Well, have you ever been to a class and had somebody not a teacher teach you? And you know the answer. No, not all are teachers. If everybody in the church was a teacher, the church would not be so confused about so many teachings. Amen? It's just an obvious thing. Okay. Uh, then he talks about gifts of healing. And clearly it seems that few people had the gift of healing. Healings were relatively rare in the New Testament as performed by an individual. And they were always intended by God to be authenticating miracles that demonstrated the power of God corroborating the word of God. Uh, Jesus did a number of signs to uh, validate that he was indeed the Messiah. The apostles also performed a number of miracles and it marked them out to be apostles. But clearly, in the New Testament, not everyone did that. 
Not everyone performed signs and wonders. Now, every saint can pray for healing, amen? And every saint can pray for our brother and sister who's hurting and needs healing. Right now, many of you are praying for our sister Alice to recover. Please continue to do that. But not all have the gift of healing. They just show up and touch them and, and, and something miraculous happens. In fact, you see a waning of that throughout church history. Do all speak in tongues? Well, what has he said on all the others? No, 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 no. So the answer here is no, 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 no. Do all interpret tongues? Again, no. Anyone who tells you you must have a certain gift in order to be a believer is wrong. Anyone who tells you you must have a certain spiritual gift in order to know that you're a believer, well, they're wrong. Now, some saints have invested great action trying to gain traction for their faction, arguing that a true believer must do something, and usually that's speak in tongues. And Paul says, hey, friend, everybody's not going to speak in tongues. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. I'm going to go with the inspired word of God and the apostle. Now, some of us might speak in tongues, but not all of us will. So don't ever be troubled when somebody says, you must or you are not really a Christian. That person is maybe well-intentioned, but they're not well-discipled according to the Word of God. So the saints at Corinth, their problem seemed to be that they seemed to prize certain gifts. These are the ones that they thought were really neat and they sort of despised other gifts that they thought, well, that's not too important of a gift. Um, they, they, they really wanted the kind of gifts that made you stand out in the crowd. Uh, they wanted to be peacocks, and it turned them into turkeys. Better to be innocent as doves and soar like eagles. That's enough of that foul teaching. Okay, so Paul already told us back, I couldn't resist that. I tried, I tried, I couldn't do it. Uh, Paul already told us back in chapter 8, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, and yet love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. See, there were saint, certain know-it-all saints in Corinth who wanted to, to be the be-all and end-all among all the other saints. They wanted to be seen as being super spiritual. And yet, you know what our Lord Jesus told us about how the kingdom of God would work? He said, it, it, the last shall be first, and the first shall be... And so peacocking does make you stand out, but it doesn't make you stand out as spiritual. It makes you stand out as carnal. When we consider our gifts, we have to remember, well, friends, these are grace gifts. We didn't choose them, and therefore we cannot lose them. But we need to use them. God gave them, and so now we need to share them. Make sense? Sadly, some saints make too light of their God-given gifts. They, they poo-poo and say, oh, I'm just not useful, and, and my little thing doesn't matter. And then there are other brothers who make too much of their gifts, and, and they act like we should kind of worship them instead of Jesus, because clearly they're gifted. That brings us to point seven today. Point seven is this. Some gifts are more visibly prominent, but none are irrelevant. Yeah, some gifts are going to stand out. Some gifts are more visibly prominent. 
but no gift of God is irrelevant. Look at verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now look at verse 11. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, some of those gifts were quite miraculous, weren't they? Uh, Miracles and healing are pretty spectacular gifts. And people tend to notice when miracles happen. Wow, that guy is gifted. And some of those gifts were really prominent and even dominant in the life of the early church. Look at verse 28. You're going to see that first gifting was apostles. That's the really prominent, dominant gift. uh, That the church, he gave first apostles and second prophets. And indeed, the word of God is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. They were major players in the early church. And third, teachers. And then miracles. And then healing. And then helping. And then various kinds of tongues. Interesting, what's last on his list of what's important? the thing that they loved the most, the thing that thought they thought made them the most spectacular, God said, was the least important. Isn't that interesting how God orders things and how we order things? Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, the ones God says are higher. And I'll show you a more excellent way. Now, the apostles were rare, but their ministry could not be missed. And prophets were second, and teachers were third. And if you think about how the early church functioned, that's how it worked. You have the apostles. And then, because you don't have the New Testament finished yet, when you needed to fill in sections, you would have a, a prophet be able to speak because they didn't have the full counsel of God and all the way to Revelation. And then in time, it was teachers explaining the existing, and, and you see this chain, don't you, of how church is, is built up Sunday in and Sunday out in a teaching capacity. And then we get to the things that are sure to bring attention, the miracles and the gifts of teaching. And then the Holy Spirit lists a whole bunch of quieter gifts, gifts that don't bring you a lot of esteem. In fact, some people think these are lowly tasks that are beneath them, such as helping and administrating. You know what? As I was thinking about this message, I, I thought about being a teenager, and I, I can't remember of too many children that had posters of helpers on their wall. They went to Spencer's Gifts, and they just had a great big picture of a helper on their bedroom wall. And, and you know, I thought more about it, and rare is the administrator who's given an award at any award show on TV. And the Oscar for Best Administrator goes to Murray from Accounting. Is Murray here tonight? Does anyone know what Murray looks like? or where accounting is in the building. You see, friends, some gifts are more visibly prominent, but no gift is irrelevant. Uh, You can can have the finest preacher in your church, but if you don't have somebody in your church with the gift of administration, your church is going to be an unholy mess. Uh, You can have the most impressive worship team on the planet, but if your church is not also blessed with a bevy of selfless servants, no one will be greeting you when you enter. No bulletins will be there or be handed out. The pens and the hymnals and the Bibles and all of that in the pew, it'll be in utter disarray day after day, and no one will be downstairs in the nursery loving your little ones to come to Jesus. 
Heaven help us if we devalue the gift of health. Friends, if for just one month God partially raptured all the administrators and all the people with the gift of helps from his church globally for 30 days, we would be begging God with an intensity to rectify that situation immediately because the church would basically stop. So I want you to write it down, big and bold and plain and straight. Some gifts are more visibly prominent, but no gift is irrelevant or God wouldn't give it. Some gifts are more visibly prominent, but no gift is irrelevant or God wouldn't give it. The Holy Spirit uses a holy analogy to get this holy point across. In verse 15, if the foot should say, hey, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. This is where the work of our flesh will try to overshadow the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some saints will sinfully belittle their God-given gift, and therefore they will fail to use it to the glory of God. And other saints will proudly boast of their gifts, even if they don't even possess them. You ever had somebody with the gift of singing who doesn't have the gift of singing, and you had to have the gift of endurance? (laughs) Both saints create an unholy mess. Moses, great man of God, was initially too timid to believe that God can use him. Lord, I'm slow in speech, and yet the New Testament says he was mighty and eloquent. Well, how did the man who was so in speech become mighty and eloquent? Because he let Jesus use him. But sometimes we never get past the, I only see the me, I don't see Jesus in me, and so I don't get in there to do things for Jesus with me. And then you have the opposite problem. You have people like King Saul. Arrogant King Saul was too proud to wait for God's man to proceed over the sacrifice. He wouldn't wait until the right man came. And so even though he was king, he wasn't allowed to do it. He did it anyway, and it cost him. You see, we can hide our gifts, or we can pretend we have gifts we don't have, and both of those cause a big problem in God's church. So each of us has a spiritual gift, and we must use it. We must steward it. We must never devalue it. And that is true for the person next to me, who has a different gift than me. Other brothers and sisters have different gifts, and so we must encourage them to use theirs because it's going to benefit us all. We must value their gift, even though it differs from our gift. It is sinful pride that says, I, me, and my, when God Almighty has decided just where we are needy and who he has positioned already, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Who's in the best position? to determine who does what in his church. God or us? Now, if you're thinking logically about what we're learning theologically, then you might fall into the following psychology. The thinking goes like this, and it's stinking thinking. 
It goes like this. If all believers have at least one gift, and if none of the gifts are irrelevant, and indeed if all of the gifts are vital to the, the common good, why didn't God give each of us all the gifts? Think about that. Why didn't God give each of us all of the gifts? Let's put it a different way. Let's put it kind of syllogistically. If, if the gifts are good, wouldn't having all the gifts be maximally good? Wouldn't the best thing a good God could do for his church was to give every Christian every gift every time? And then look, we'd be self-contained little churches. And the answer is because he never intended for us to be self-contained little churches. Point eight on our outlines addresses this. This sovereign distribution of gifts is designed to make us dependent on God's spirit and interdependent on one another. The sovereign distribution of gifts is designed to make us dependent on God, on his spirit, and interdependent on one another. Verse 7 has already told us to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for what purpose? The common good. He's trying to bring us together because I have a deficit. I need you. I might be able to do this better than you, but you can do this better than me. And if we work together, it's better than if we did it apart. Verses 14 through 26 tell us, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the whole body were one gift, if were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body, and the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think are less honorable will bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And so if one member suffers, well, what does the body feel? All suffer. You, you get an infection in, in your pinky, <laughs> And, and your whole day is stinky, right? It throbs, you know, oh, I can't touch things, and I can't eat, and you know. One little thing, and your whole body suffers. And if one part of your body is honored, if you go win the Olympics with your feet in a running race, your head gets to have the crown, right? But in the church, somebody gets honored, and we get petty. Somebody suffers, we get quiet and awkward, walk away. Now, as sinners, we struggle to look to God. We want to be our own gods. That's the temptation in the garden that Satan came. You can be like God. But the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and God gives grace to the humble, but he humbles the proud, which is why James says we must humble ourselves before our God. We must admit our total dependence on Jesus. We must admit that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, when telling people to become a Christian, says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're asking him to run your life. 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hebrews 11.6 is quite clear on this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Every Christian knows that, that, that we must be dependent on God for our salvation. If you don't know that, you're not a Christian. <laughs> but we really easily forget, as Christians, that we're just as dependent on one another in a different way. Ultimately, our dependence is on God, but we have a designed interdependence on one another. That means we need our brothers and sisters. E even in paradise, it wasn't so nice. Back in the Garden of Eden, the Lord God said, it is not good that man is alone. There had been no sin. A perfect God made a perfect world and a perfect person in a perfect place, and it wasn't good for him not to have someone else to share it with. Because it wasn't God's design for us to be autonomous. But as North Americans, we think it's our design to be autonomous. We, we struggle to give God primacy, and we reject that anyone else needs to be interdependent with me. The early church knew a lot about interdependence, and it was attractive to a broken world. And Acts 2.42 says, despite all the persecution in their situation, that church grew stronger, that church grew bolder as they gathered together and they encouraged one another daily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. That, that is, as they were interdependent with one another and, and totally dependent on God, worship happened. Awe came upon every soul in that church. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all who believed together, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and Belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They were so saved, their wallets got wet when they hit the baptismal, right? <laughs> and they began sharing with whoever had a need. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, 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 and breaking bread in their homes together, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And here's what really neat thing happened. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When the church does what the church was meant to do, you will be in awe and worship, and your neighbor will be attracted. But if we do our own thing, our own way, nobody is going to see Jesus that way. You see, our modern world tries so hard to elevate the individual. You are the most important thing. Burger King, uh, theology, you know, have it my way right away. Our country celebrates this, this ethos, have you heard of it, rugged individualism. That was one of the things, our country's a pioneering country, rugged individualism. But God's gospel calls for our total dependence on Jesus as the church is one foundation. And then any local church where God's Son is glorified, where we are edified and our blessings are multiplied, is not a church where we avoid one another because it's awkward, but we recognize our independence on one another, our interdependence on one another. And that's messy, isn't it? See, we will not develop relationships with people different than us because it's awkward. Or we can develop relationships of interdependence on one another, and that's messy. Those are your choices. Awkward and unbiblical and stay in your shell. Messy and one another. One of them is unbiblical. One of them is biblical. And in the church today, one of them, unfortunately, is normal. And one of them is exceptional. Which one will you make Calvary be. Did you know there are over 50 one another commands in the New Testament? 
We're to love one another, to honor one another, to serve one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another. And let me tell you, we struggle with these commands, don't we? Uh, There's a guy named Ray Ortland, and he was very helpful in my thinking on this matter. He noticed that some saints are loath to love and forgive one another, but we're quite happy to humble one another. We're quite happy to scrutinize one another. We're quite happy to pressure one another, to embarrass one another, to corner one another, to interrupt one another, to defeat one another, to sacrifice one another, to shame one another, to marginalize one another, to exclude one another, to judge one another, to run one another's lives, to confess one another's sins. Maybe we should repent with one another instead. Either way, it's important that we understand that our deficiencies in not having all the gifts, well, friends, those are by God's good design, so that we might not just be dependent on him, but he wants us to be interdependent on one another. Christianity is not autonomous allegiance to Jesus. It's the company of the redeemed called out, sold out to the one who will never cast us out. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, one of the most common words for church, and it means called out ones, and it has the idea of being an assembly. So, we must discover our gifts, because every believer has at least one gift. We must share our gifts, that is, we must steward God's mysteries for the common good. And while some gifts are more prominent, no gift is ever irrelevant, or God wouldn't give it to us. And that brings us to our last point, and I hope this sums up all of our points, and sort of puts a big bow around what we're trying to say. Number nine is this. Our gifts can be misused by a lack of use. They can be misused solely for our personal use, and they can be misused by our prideful abuse. There are three main ways we mess up spiritual gifts. Our gifts can be misused by a lack of use. We don't use our gifts. For our personal use, it's mine, and I don't care if you benefit. And by prideful abuse, I'm going to stand over you and hoard it above you. Verses 21 through 25 tells us we must use our gifts, and that a lack of use will hurt God's church. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. In the body, it doesn't work that way. But in the church, we have lots of people who work that way. I don't need you. I don't need this. I don't have time for you and this. Nor can the head say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that are less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 7 reminds us that while we may well personally benefit from our gifts, that was not Jesus' primary purpose in giving you that gift. Verse 7, for to each is given manifestations of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. For the common good. So our gifts are misused by a lack of use, or they're misused for solely personal use. And they are misused when they are accompanied with prideful abuse. And we see this most clearly in the first and last verses of our chapter. In the first few verses, we see the abuses of adopting a prideful sensationalism. 
that the pagans bring with them in their religion. And we think it's spiritual because it's sensational, and God thinks it's a mess. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So you can do sensational things, and they can be unbiblical things. And so instead, we should keep our heads, and we should instead do what the last verse says in verse 31. We should earnestly desire the higher gifts. The higher gifts are not the sensational gifts. They're the more valuable gifts that benefit the most believers. And then he goes into this chapter on love that we always talk about in weddings. He talks about a still more excellent way. And the more excellent way is to use our gifts in self-sacrificial love, to love our brother by using our gifts in ways that glorify our Savior and edify our neighbor. The still more excellent way says, you know what? Even if I spoke in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not this love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Even if I had prophetic powers and I understood all the mysteries and I had all knowledge of all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So one wise brother once said this, spiritual gifts are tools to build with. They're not toys to play with. They're not weapons to fight with. Spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with or weapons to fight with. In the church at Corinth, believers were tearing down the ministry because they were abusing their spiritual gifts. They were using their gifts as ends to themselves and not as a means to the real end, which is building one another up until we're mature in Christ. They so emphasized their spiritual gifts that they... That they they basically vaporized spiritual graces. They had the gifts of the Spirit, but you didn't see much of the fruit of the Spirit in the church of Corinth. When you read the book of Corinthians, you're going to see there wasn't a whole lot of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hard to see that on a Sunday in Corinth. May we be a church that's in control, not out of control. A church that exhibits the manifestations of God's Spirit selflessly, not selfishly. May we be a church that uses God's grace gifts worshipfully, not pridefully. And the basic truth is this. You have at least one spiritual gift. How are you using it? To the glory of Jesus and the good of your neighbor. To those ends, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would please help us to discover our spiritual gifts. I know that every believer that comes to our prospective members class, we give them a spiritual gifts inventory. It's a tool. It's not perfect. It's imprecise. But it takes folks who maybe have never thought before, do I have a spiritual gift? And they begin to think, well, perhaps this is a way I'm wired. And often it comes as a surprise. But as we begin to walk in those gifts, we begin to get affirmation from your people and realize this is something I'm gifted to do. I may need to fan it into flame, but uh, there's something that I have to use for the Lord Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, help us as a church to discover our gifts. Help us to deploy our gifts for service to Jesus by serving one another, not by peacocking and clucking and pecking, but by serving. May we encourage one another, not exasperate one another as we use our gifts. May we, may we affirm one another how their gifts have impacted us. May we encourage one another as long as it's called today. May we not devalue somebody else's gift because it's different from ours. May we instead grow all the more dependent on you, Lord Jesus, and interdependent on one another, the people you've redeemed, Jesus, that in our personal weaknesses, your great strength may be made visible because we believe you are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you and I, each of us, are somehow wonderfully, beautifully stones, living stones in this holy temple. And so we ask that this temple would make an aroma sweet in the nostrils of the living God. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.